The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And we are turning to Genesis chapter 17. So if you haven't already done that, grab a Bible and uh, let's open together to Genesis chapter 17. We're in the middle portion of Genesis 17. We've been studying uh, in Genesis, starting in chapter 12, the life of Abraham, the faith of our father, understanding the roots and the nature of the Christian faith through the life of Abraham, and today in chapter 17. And we'll get there in uh, just a moment. But uh, a number of you asked me about this. I was down in Orlando uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for some church meetings uh, relevant to some stuff that I do for the presbytery. Uh, but they had uh, about a, a room of 25 or so uh, ministers and ruling elders, teaching and ruling elders. And among the very things that we were responsible for that day, we kind of took a, a sidebar on some of our conversations. And the person who was moderating the meeting asked the most open-ended question that you could ask, I think, a room of pastors and elders. Uh, you know, what's, what's wrong with the world? And I thought that was a very strange question. But what's wrong with the world? Like, what do you see as a difficulty in the world that creates a struggling influence for the church? What rising influences in the world create difficulty for ministry in the 21st century? Okay? Now, I suppose if I asked you that question, that you could come up with a number of things, or you could phrase it perhaps differently. What, 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 what rising influences in the world today make it difficulty, difficult for you to live your Christian life in the midst of a culture that is at times hostile to your faith? Well, the room you know, spent, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes on this uh, topic and wrote up on a board all these things, all these influences, all these you know varied worldviews and philosophies and all the rest that challenge the Christian worldview. And again, I can imagine that you could name a few as well. But what was interesting was that at the end, it was very clear that every single one of these things, no matter what it was, really traced back to just one issue. And uh, it's an issue that we are all well aware of, and it is the issue of fierce individuality, self-sovereignty, self-governance. Don't tell me what to do. I rule over my own life, I lead my own life, and I govern my own life according to my own morals. This is in the, uh, the major summary, the undergirded theology of modern man. And what is interesting is that it is not just modern man, but it's also ancient man. Because if you remember, that's the one issue from the garden, wasn't it? Don't tell me what I can and can't have, God. I'll take what I want for myself. Self-sovereignty, fierce individuality, radical individualism. You should be asking yourself the question, now what in the world does that have to do with Genesis, particularly Abraham? And uh, if you're scanning ahead and where we're at in the text, the, the topic of our text today, you might be wondering what in the world does that have to relate? We'll come back to that. But what we've been seeing in Genesis 17 is uh, last week we saw a man about 100 years old experience a name change in the first half of chapter 17. And earlier on in chapter 16, Abram, who'd been given these wonderful promises from God, thought God was slow to fulfill them to him and decided to take things into his own hands so that if Abram at 90-something years old was going to have children, he was going to have it according to his own plan with uh, his wife's uh, servant Ishmael and produce uh, his wife's servant Hagar and produce Ishmael. God comes to him and says, Abram, what you have done in terms of taking life into your own hands is stepped outside of my purposes for you. 
You've stepped outside of my rule for you. God comes to him with a reminder that if the promises are going to come true, they're going to come true according to God's purposes. And in order to teach him that, in chapter 17, he has renamed Abram from Abram, which meant exalted father, to Abraham, the father of nations. God comes to him and says, I am God Almighty. I can do many things. I can give you what I promised. Namely, do you remember them? Land, seed, and blessing, the substance of the Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham, I have told you again and again and again, my word is true, you can trust me, but you must learn to live by faith or else you will constantly struggle through this world. I have told you again and again. And now, Abraham, in order to help you, in order to strengthen your faith, in order to nourish your confidence that my word is true, I'm going to give you a picture. I'm going to give you a visible sign of my promise. And that's what we're looking at uh, today in Genesis 17, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word, and then we will hear it together. Father, we, we pause now to bow before you and say that you are our God, that we are your people, that here you speak to us in your word, which is both true and relevant to our lives today as it ever was back when you were speaking to Abraham. And so, Lord, I pray that in the power of your spirit that you would rest upon our minds to bring illumination and understanding that you would rest upon our hearts and our wills to bring obedience and love and so lord do a work amongst us in the power of your spirit we pray as we hear your word in jesus name amen this is the word of god from genesis in chapter 17 beginning of verse 9 through verse 14 hear the word of god and God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, but he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so let us attend to God's word here in Genesis 17. So, to a world of radical individuality, to a world that insists on self, to a world that demands self-sovereignty, the covenant God speaks a word of corporate belonging. Corporate belonging. That God encourages us 
to think in the context of not just I and me and my, but we and our corporate identity, a sense of belonging to a family. And God has a people, and God marks his people with a sign so that they might know that we are the people of God. I am a part of a greater reality than just myself. I am a part of the people of God. So the sign of the covenant marks God's people as his own. That is the big picture across Genesis 17, that God marks his own people with the sign of the covenant. And we need to understand how that relates to what God is saying, both to Abraham here in Genesis 17, but also how that word of covenant promise uh, intersects your life, mine as a Christian in this age, this idea of belonging together to the people of God. So we want to see uh, several things, but the first is just in the details of Genesis 17 you see in your outline. First of all, we want to pick up this understanding of the covenant sign itself in Genesis 17 verses 9 through the first part of 13. And notice that as God has been speaking to Abraham, he's been speaking to him about his covenant and the covenant promises of land, seed, and blessing. God now attaches a sign to the promise. That is, he makes the promise visible with a sign. Now, God has already done this several times in the Bible, even here by Genesis 17. But the most recent one, think of Noah. What was the sign that God gave to Noah to be a remembrance of the covenant promise? The rainbow, right? That I will not destroy the earth through water. God pledges himself in faithfulness to Noah and the successive generations of the earth with the sign of the rainbow. And when you look at the bow, you're supposed to remember the promise. That's how sign and uh, symbol of promise function. One points to the other. Uh, just like a, a marriage ring, a wedding ring, the symbol itself points to the greater reality. Or another way of thinking about it, as you're driving along and you're maybe on a long car trip and you're headed home and let's say you see a sign that you're 10 miles from home, uh, you don't get out of the car and then celebrate the sign, you keep on going, right? Because there's a reality that the sign signifies that you're trying to understand behind the physical picture itself. And in this case, we understand what the sign is. Verse 11, God says to Abram that this shall be the sign of the covenant. Circumcision. The sign is circumcision, but the promise, the promise is all of what God has been promising to Abram thus far throughout Genesis, right? That I will surely be your God and I will multiply you and I will give you this land and through you the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Like these are the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and for Abram to remember the promises, he's given the sign. But I want you to notice in verse 13 that the physical sign and the promise are spoken of interchangeably. Verse 13 says, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And in verse 11, verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 10, this is my covenant. So God is speaking interchangeably of covenant as both the promises and the sign itself. 
When God speaks of the sign, he's speaking of the promises of the sign. Suffice it to say that circumcision was the sign that showed God's people that he had chosen them as his own, and it all starts with Abraham. Now just quickly think for a moment about the sign itself. It obviously is circumcision. We see it many times in the text, the cutting off of flesh. But this practice did not originate with Israel. It's not historic uh, originating in Israel. Uh, A couple of particular notes that I found about this is that it's traced as early as 4,000 years up from African tribes to the Egyptians and then went east through the ancient Near East up into Israel. And so it was not just an ethnic practice of Israel whatsoever. Uh, But it was the sign that God chose to designate his people. And the reason why he chose this sign, it was so that Abraham would bear in his flesh the reminder of the promises. It's a very personal sign, obviously, but Abraham is the one that has received these promises and bears the sign of the promise in his flesh. And the reason why, uh, usually people want to ask the questions, why, why this sign and what is the point of this? And there's, there's two reasons. There's a positive and there's a negative. On the one hand, as the sign of the promise of blessing and posterity, obviously there is associated the transmission of life. That life comes by way of this and remember, Abraham, my word to bless you with posterity. And remember, I have promised to bless you through the transmission of life. Positively speaking, there is the promise. But in a negative sense, there's another word that this sign represents. That as there is cutting as there is the shedding of blood just as much as it blesses it is also a word of curse and warning if Abraham is not faithful and we'll come back to that in just a moment but the sign speaks both a word of promise and a warning notice also the sign itself is given not just to Abraham but also for future generations verse 9 It speaks of your offspring through their generations. Verse 10, your offspring after you. Verse 13, it's designated as an everlasting covenant. And so God is giving Abraham this sign of the covenant, but it's not just Abraham's sign. It is for all those who would share the faith of Abraham, that they too would share in this mark of being God's own people. So the sign of the covenant marks God's people as his own. But it is not just a physical sign. There is more to this. Uh, Look again uh, of the covenant blessings in Genesis 17, verse 13. Notice second half of verse 13, it says, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And you want to key in on this term, everlasting covenant. Now, Abraham is the one who has been receiving from God these wonderful promises. But God has told him, Abraham, that what I'm saying to you and what I will do for you is not just for you, it's also for your children and theirs and their children on into successive generations for this everlasting promise to be not just your God, Abraham, but the God of your children and your grandchildren on, on, and on. Abraham is the heir of those promises through faith that God will bless those who are the children of Abraham. And God, in giving this sign, wants to bless Abraham further. He's he's pouring on this idea of, I want you, Abraham, to know beyond all doubt that I am your God. 
and to remember beyond all question that you are my son, that I have chosen you, that I have uh, given you my name, that I have not forsaken you. And in order to bless Abraham, he gives him this sign. And the word that we would also use there is sacrament. God gives this sacred sign to assure Abraham to confirm his word, to confirm his promise, to assure Abraham's faith. And it blesses Abraham because it reminds him that I am chosen by God. I am chosen by God. The sign is this outward mark to identify those within the covenant community. And if you've received the sign, then you were counted as a part of the people, that you belonged. And all those males that received the covenant sign and their families were counted to be a part of true Israel in the Old Testament. But you also notice that as it speaks of blessing in verse 14, that it's possible to consider those who are not circumcised, who have not received the sign, those, those people do not belong. So there is a demarcation that takes place through the sign of the covenant as a sacrament to say, these belong and these do not. Anyone could receive the sign if they came into Abraham's uh, household, into his faith, into his trust in God. But it was a clear word of saying, these belong who believe in God, who trust in his promises. And they will receive in their body the mark of the covenant and carry with them the blessing of remembering that they are chosen and loved by God. And that is true to Abraham and to the following generations that don't even exist yet. God is telling Abraham, do this for all your successive generations when there are still no children besides Ishmael. Which speaks this great word of blessing that God intends. But it is not just blessing. It's also, in the third place, obligation. And again, that comes out of verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh and his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We need to see together that God's covenant is gracious. It is full of mercy, but it also includes obligations, things that must be done. Now, in the first part of Genesis 17, through the first eight verses, at least five different times, God says, Abraham, I will, I will, I will. I will do this, I will do that for you. I promise you this, I will give you that. But there's a transition that takes place in verse 9 when it says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, Abraham, I will do all these things for you, but there is an as for you in verse 9, Abraham, there is within this context of gracious relationship and obligation. There's two people in this relationship. There is something that I bring to you and there is something that you must bring to me. And as for you, you shall do this. You shall receive the sign of the covenant. You shall be marked as belonging to me. And God through this is calling on Abraham simply to be absolutely committed to him in this relationship. Abraham, stay with me. Abraham, do not forsake me. Stay with me and trust me. Be committed to me. Do not seek your satisfaction in these other gods of these foreign lands of these pagan people, but rather stay with me and you must stay with me. And he tells Abraham that it is not enough to just 
bear the sign, but you must also continue in the faith. You must still believe in me. There is this implicit warning that to not obey and to not bear the sign faithfully is to be, verse 14, cut off, to break the covenant, to be unfaithful. And that's why in every sense, a sacrament as a sign of a covenant bears with it both the blessings and the curse. There is the blessings that come when we receive the sign in faith, and there is a curse that stands over it as well if we fail to obey. Namely, that metaphorically this idea of cutting is what will happen to you if you are unfaithful. You will be cut off. Not a part of your body, but you from my people will be cut off. So there is this sense in which the sign speaks of the blessing and the curse of being cut off if you fail to obey and stay with me. Now you should be asking yourself, you know, what, what does this have anything to do with the gospel and with Jesus and with this whole concept of radical individuality? Well, as simply as possible... Just as God gave Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision and promised both a blessing and the curse, we remember the fact that Jesus was cut off. He was cut off from the faithful people when he went outside the city gate and suffered and bore our sins. He was cut off through his death and resurrection. And now, because of what Jesus has done, the mark that was given to bear and identify the people of God under the old covenant has changed. Because now, because of what Jesus has done in shedding his blood, means that the sign of the covenant is no longer a bloody sign. It is a bloodless sign because Christ has shed his blood. And now the sign of the covenant is not circumcision, but it is a sign of cleansing, namely baptism. Just as God gave circumcision in the old covenant to be the sign by which his people were identified in the exact same way, the sign in the new covenant identifies God's people by way of baptism. And it was the marking factor. But you notice that there is an expansion as Jesus comes and the new covenant unfolds, that this sign is applicable now both to male and female. There is an expansion of it as an inclusion of God's people to bear the mark that I am the people of God. I am a part. I do not live my life for myself, but I am joined together. Now, we know that that's the case, and we know it so strongly that I also want to revisit this case. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Turn forward in the book of Acts, and let's go to chapter 2, and we'll, we'll finish there. But Acts and chapter 2, we want to pick up on this idea that God marks his people with a sign, and the sign represents the promise. Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning there, remembering the language of the Abrahamic covenant being that God would bless Abraham and his children to be their God and they his people. And you're moving on early on in the book of Acts. Christ has ascended into heaven and he has sent his spirit down so that the ministry of the gospel might go forth. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And at the end of his sermon, he makes this massive statement that resounds 
Genesis 17. So look at Acts chapter 2 and pick up verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, and the this is the proclamation of the gospel from verse 36, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, when they heard this, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Focus in verse 39, what does it say? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is quoting Genesis 17 and preaches this gospel of belonging, preaches this gospel of corporate identity, this gospel of you are the people of God and the mark that you shall receive is to, verse 38, believe and be baptized. It is the exact same pattern as the Abrahamic promise, the promises of God for you and your children, those who are in your household, and those who are far off who will be brought in through faith. Now, I am setting that down in front of you as a, as a reality in which we surely teach the Bible and understand it. That the sign in the Old Covenant was circumcision, the sign in the New Covenant is baptism. So we, as Christian people, who practice baptism... We are practicing this instituted sign of the covenant that God has given to us. And we should be asking ourselves this question, what's it for? What does it do? And specifically, we are those as Presbyterians, among other traditions, who baptize infants. Why? Well, there's lots of wonderful reasons for that. And, and rather than giving you, you know, a million thoughts about this, trying to summarize it here, that, that just as God promised to Abram this idea of the covenant sign that would bring both blessings and curse, we still operate in that same sense. That the sign of baptism carries with it both blessings and curses. Now, listen to this. How do we practice infant baptism in this church? You know one of my favorite things about what we do is we put the kids down on front so they can sit in the front pew and get a front row seat. They can see for themselves. Why? Because they don't remember, Right? When it happened to them, they didn't come by their own volition. Their parents brought them, and they need to be instructed that this happened to you. This is true of you. You need to know what this means as God pledges himself to you by water baptism that he is your God. We do that here in the church because, Christian parents, grandparents, you should be doing that at home. To your nieces and nephews, your grandchildren, your children, you should be doing that at home. You should be telling them. You are a child of God. This happened to you. Celebrate it with them. Remind them of it. Explain it to them. The grace of the sacrament comes by way of the explanation and instruction. Child, this is yours. The promise that all of your sins will be washed away when you rest and trust in Jesus Christ. This is yours. This belongs to you. This is a promise that has your name on it and it is given to you for you to receive. 
And we, we place the sign of the covenant upon a person before they are able to understand it because that's exactly the way God's love comes to us, isn't it? God loved you far before you were able to understand it or explain it or understand what was happening to you at all. The beauty in covenant baptism is that God has the word of priority and that word is a word of grace. You belong and I love you and I'm yours. It is a promise that is there present in baptism. And what we are supposed to do as a church is nurture those promises to nurture that promise so that it will bear fruit into faith. Because one of the most dangerous things, and I think usually people who criticize infant baptism the most have this in their minds, that kids just grow up with the idea of, oh, I'm baptized, so I don't need to do anything. And don't worry about it. Well, that might be the case if you raise your child to just be moral and religious, but not believing. If you just raise your children and grandchildren to be nice, to be religious, that is not the associated promise of the sign of the covenant. What you can do is teach your children. What you can do is make your children you know, upright and good people and all that, but you cannot change their hearts. Only God can do that through faith in Jesus Christ and their baptism is a testimony that he will do that when they come to faith baptism just like circumcision speaks this word of promise that you are marked as belonging the sign of the covenant is placed upon you and that promise requires an answer the promise requires an answer God has claimed you do you receive him as your own? If yes, then this speaks a word of promise that your sins are washed away, that you are cleansed. If you, having received the sign of baptism, forsake your baptism, deny your God, forsake his promises, it speaks a word of curse that where the waters bless in one sense, they also overwhelm in another, foreshadowing the floodwaters of, let it be said, judgment. That if the promises of God are forsaken in the life of someone who has been nurtured in that, then they stand at risk, which all the more reason inclines us to tell our children, whether they are five years old or 45 years old, you have been claimed. Will you respond to the God who claims you? Will you answer the promises of this God? Or will you forsake him? And Christian parents and grandparents sometimes, and uh, those of you who are aunts and uncles, and bear a special sorrow perhaps for children, covenant children who have been raised and then wander away. I know the pain that you bear. Because I, I hear you speak of it. And the grace of the sign of the covenant means that when you pray for your children, when you pray for your nieces and nephews and your grandchildren and all those in your life who bear that sign, it is a prayer that is seen in the heart of God as so close to his own heart that he loves to answer. It may be in his own time, though. 
but it is a prayer that you can pray with confidence that as God has promised, so surely he will do, that when faith is joined to the sign, the sign becomes what it signifies, namely, the washing away of all of our sins. The gospel has this message for this world of radical individuality that you are not free to choose your own God. You are not free to choose your own way of religion and have things your way. There is only one God, and he claims you. And knowing that bond of relationship is the pathway to blessing, the God who makes you and who has kept his covenant with you. So last two questions. One, are you baptized? Then you are bearing the mark of the people of God and included among them. Live like it is what your baptism says. If you bear the sign, you must live in the obligations of the sign. With all of its blessings, but also with its obligations, if you are baptized, do you believe but are not baptized? Peter says, be baptized. And if you want to talk about that, I would love to talk to you about that. Obey the command. Be baptized. Embrace the promises of God because he claims you as his own. The sign of the covenant marks the people of God. And we are the people of God, chosen, forgiven, and loved in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you claim us as your own. For on our own, we would never claim you for ourselves. We would prefer to have it our own way and rule our own little kingdoms. And yet, Lord, you have called us into something infinitely greater and eternally wonderful. Lord, I pray that you would give to us the encouragement that we need, remembering our baptism, that we are chosen and forgiven and loved, and that you would give us the grace to live in light of its promises, to be a people set apart for your sake, to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us, for we are a people who are in need. Help us cling to Christ today as we sing his praises in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.